0: Good evening and welcome everyone here and thanks for your very good attention last night and tonight we want to continue our theme of the uh, kingdom and tonight we want to look at the preamble to the kingdom. You know kings when they uh, start out uh, they lay down the law, they say what's expected in their kingdom and uh, usually there's a constitution and uh, in the Old Testament that constitution basically was the Ten Commandments. And we certainly would expect a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God, as we have it in the New Testament, uh, to have its constitution. And I think all serious Christians would would have said the focus finally rests for all serious Christians on the Sermon on the Mount. So I want you to turn tonight to Matthew chapter 5. I believe everything in the New Testament flows from this sermon. Now most constitutions have a preamble. The preamble means to amble in front of something that uh, uh, precedes and introduces uh, something. And, uh, of course, our United States Constitution gives us the uh, uh, privileges that we as Americans have. It doesn't quite do what this Constitution preamble does. We're going to be looking tonight at what is called the Beatitudes. I'm going to call it the preamble to Jesus' Constitution. We don't have rights here. In the uh, U.S. Constitution, the important thing is the rights of the citizens. Rather, we have the responsibilities of the citizens of this kingdom. We don't have rights. Christians don't have rights. They have responsibilities. But with each of those responsibilities is given a privilege connected with that responsibility. So in that sense, it's maybe a little bit similar to the Constitution as we know it. So in this Constitution, uh, we have this preamble which we want to look at tonight now the thing that always perplexed me when I read this portion of scripture growing up was for the Sermon on the Mount and the importance that it has and the clarity of its statements about the kingdom why doesn't it begin with the new birth that always bothered me why don't why doesn't it say anything like it says in John 3 you must be born again and then we'll start with this because that is the beginning. I think you all agree that's the beginning of the Christian life, the new birth. Brother Nathan, it'd be interesting. I'm not going to ask you to do it, but it'd be interesting for you to tell me why this doesn't begin with the new birth. <laughs> or does it? It struck me one day that's exactly how it begins. But you see, in most people's minds, the new birth is an event. But this pictures the new birth as a process, it has a beginning. You don't don't work your way into it. It has a definite beginning, we're gonna see that. But it's not just an event, it's a process. And so what you have here is you have the new birth introduced, how it happens, and then you have the dynamics that it introduces into life and how they begin to work their way into our experience. And so I think it begins with a magnificent description of the new birth and everything that flows from it. As an introduction, to this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, You know, most people have this beginning in their Christian life called the new birth and then they're sort of disappointed. It never really gives them the fulfillment that they expected or that people promised. It's a little bit like Mozart who loved to play a trick on his old father, Leopold, who also was a musician. Mozart loved to come home at night after his father was in bed sound asleep and sit down at the piano and play a piece of music that kept rising and rising till it came to its conclusion almost, and then he would stop at the next to the last note and go to bed. (laughs) And poor old Leopold would just toss and turn in his bed, and he couldn't get to sleep until he went down to the piano and played the last note. (laughs) (laughs) That's how the Christian life is for many people. They have the beginning, but they don't have the dynamics that flow from it. And they end up disappointed by their Christian experience. And so here we have the new birth introduced, how it happens, and we have the dynamic begins to flow from that new birth. And it's an introduction then, and Jesus then spells it out. I said last night that the kingdom of God is a corporate experience. Our salvation is a means to that end. But we're going to have to look very carefully at that means, exactly what that means involves, or we're not going to have the corporate experience. So I want to say tonight that the individual aspect of this is very important. I hope nothing I said last night minimized the importance of your own individual redemption. But it's a means to an end. And if everybody pays attention to that means, we will have a wonderful end. (laughs) We'll have a wonderful church experience. We'll have a wonderful light to the world around us at what they see us in our interactions. The kingdom is based on character. It's based on character. Somebody has said, the character of influence is the influence of character. The character of influence is the influence of character. Character. And that is the purpose. Right after the preamble, You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And so that's the purpose, influence. God, I told you last night, God created us to have dominion. We were here to make a difference, individually and corporately. And anything short of that does not bring satisfaction. So, well, let's talk a little bit. I'd like to give a little bit of a a, a survey of this constitution of the kingdom. And then we'll go into the preamble and we'll try to make it as short as possible. All right, verses 5, chapter 5, 17 to 20, tells us the relation of this Constitution to the Old Testament. Now, people listening to Jesus ask the question we always ask Is he a conservative or is he a liberal? He's talking in a way different from the way Moses talked. He's acting as if some things Moses said the way we understood them are not the way we think they should be. I think he's a liberal. And Jesus anticipated that, and so he makes it very clear. And we're not going to read these passages. You can go home and read them. He makes it very clear that he is on the side of law. He makes it very clear. He says, if anybody breaks the least commandment and teaches Ben that, he will be the dregs of the, of the society. But if people keep the law, keep the, and he's about to give the most stringent laws, way more stringent than Moses ever gave. And so he makes it very clear, I am not a liberal in the sense that I do not believe in law, that I do not believe in order, that I do not believe in discipline. I believe in all of that. And anybody who doesn't believe in that is, is, is someone you shouldn't be listening to. You know, people have a wrong concept of freedom. They think freedom is to get rid of all your inhibitions. No, it's not that. It's a little bit like, here's a pond. Here's a happy little fish in that pond. And so he's swimming around, and he bumps into the banks around, wow, I I really need more uh, scope for my imagination. I think I will uh, forget about these boundaries. So he flips out. To freedom? What? (laughs) Death! There's not freedom outside of boundaries. I just told the people at supper tonight that if you want to have freedom on the piano and you want to just be able to have fun there and talk while you're doing it and uh, just really just abandon yourself to the keyboard, you have to submit yourself to hours and hours and hours and hours and hours hours of discipline when everybody else is outside uh, doing something you would sooner be doing. If you want to master a foreign language and you want to have freedom talking to people in that language, you subject yourself to about a year at least of very stringent discipline to master the vocabulary, the uh, grammar, the syntax, the idioms, and everything of that language. And then you have freedom. If you want freedom as an artist and you want to be able to walk up to a chalkboard with a couple pieces of colored chalk and go, and it looks like a rooster that's actually ready to crow. (laughs) You subject yourself to hours and hours to master perspective, light and shadow. Uh, Yeah, all of the disciplines of art. I mean, I could get colored chalk and go through to have freedom. And you would say, as you say about the mental chart today, what is it? (laughs) I spent years trying to tell high school students, beware of the undisciplined way. If there's no discipline connected to it, it is a false freedom. Freedom flows from discipline. Discipline, okay. So Jesus makes it very clear. He's on the side of law. There's no place for people to play fast and loose with law. You know, we hear this idea that it's legalism that stifles spirituality. Really? Jesus said, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Oh, iniquity is lawlessness. Let's get our L word right. It's not legalism that destroys spirituality. It's lawlessness. And Jesus made it very clear that he is on the side of law. He's on the side of discipline. He's on the side of order. He is not on the side of undisciplined living. Then we go into the kingdom statutes where he gives the disciplines. I'm I'm showing you the beautiful flow here through this, this outline. The kingdom statutes. And if you look at those, and you would talk to those, to even the average person in society, they would say, well, if a society could master those, it would be the ideal society, which is exactly what Jesus is is wanting to to bring us to. Someone who is free from anger. Someone who's free from lust. Someone who's free from uh, uh, dishonesty. Someone who's free from covetousness. Wow. Brother Josh... If you had a whole society that had mastered anger and lust and dishonesty and greed you could all walk off into the sunset <laughs> it would be the perfect society and that's what and see these have been ignored because they look too idealistic but what people don't understand is Jesus was actually proposing an ideal society with the power of heaven behind it to make it happen <laughs> Oh, I get so excited, as you can see. So we have these kingdom statutes in chapter 5. Beautiful. It basically masters what's needed for the ideal society. Then we come into chapter 6, and we have the spirituality that must motivate that society. The spirituality that makes that society possible and those statutes attainable. And so Jesus endorses much to the delight of his Jewish audience, the three principles of Judaism, the three pillars. They called it the three pillars of righteousness. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Those are the three pillars of righteousness according to the Jews. That's what they taught. When they heard him say that, ah, he's on target there. That's, that's, that's what it is. Now, I'm not going to be talking about fasting, so I just want to say a word about fasting. I think fasting is one of the most ingenious things Jesus put here. I call fasting the great reset because all of us tend to gravitate toward the flesh. It's just a uh, problem with our eating, with our clothes. With our, we just gravitate toward the flesh. Just, 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 I think the best example is the beds we sleep in. Do you know that beds are not, most of the world doesn't sleep in beds. They have mats, they roll them up, put them underneath the table. They don't have room for beds, they just have one little room for everything. And so you sleep on mats that are underneath the table and you get those out at night and you sleep on them. And we have beds. That's a luxury right there. I don't care what your bed looks like or whether the mattress is lumpy or what. (laughs) If you have a bed, you have a luxury but that's not enough. You have to have a bedroom suite. <laughs> and you have to have a special mattress that caters to every little whim of your body. <laughs> and you've got to pay hundreds of dollars for it. Thousands of dollars, maybe. And Jesus says the solution to that problem is not to keep doing that, but to sleep on the floor for a while. And that's the great reset button. Food. Most people think because they're bored with the food, you go to a more, a more uh, esoteric restaurant and you try to eat food you never have eaten from some other country, prepared in some strange way. Because what happens is their taste buds have gotten dulled. And so you have to stimulate them more and more and more to get more out of it. And Jesus said, no, that's not right. You have it all wrong. Quit eating! <laughs> And your sensitivities will come back again. And then you'll eat potatoes with no butter and no salt on it, and you'll think they're wonderful. (laughs) That's fasting. I think it's an ingenious, Jesus said you're going to need this. If you're going to live what I teach, you're going to have to push the reset button occasionally. So if you find your sensitivities sort of getting dulled and you have to get something more expensive and more exotic, just quit. And your sensitivities will come back. Well, I took too long on that one. All right. (laughs) Somebody must have needed it. (laughs) Anyway, so I just want to, most people don't understand fasting. I want to explain to you what fasting is. That's what it does. That's what it's all about. Okay. It's a great reset button. So we have almsgiving. The interesting word thing for this word is, it was the one that was considered the most important of these three. And that's why in this chapter, this is the only one that Jesus elaborates on more than he does anything else he has to say, this whole idea of money and what to do with it. And I think it's interesting that this is in chapter 6 with the kingdom spirituality rather than in chapter 5 with the kingdom statutes. This idea of what we do with our stuff is part of the spirituality that undergirds the statutes. And if you don't get that one right, you won't get the statutes right. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So, in fact, the word almsgiving, if you look in the Septuagint, they tell me, and I'm not a Greek scholar, I tell people I know a little bit of Greek and a little bit of Hebrew. The little Greek runs a restaurant. The little Hebrew runs a clothing store. And (laughs) that's all I know about Greek. But I, I read what people say about it. And they say that in the Septuagint, this word for almsgiving is often translated righteousness. So they equate the two. That almsgiving and righteousness, when you were doing almsgiving in the Jewish mind, you were doing righteousness. That That was as close as you could come to doing something that was righteous. And if you stop to think about it, that's probably true. The way you handle your money and and whether you take it for yourself or give it, that probably has as much to do with your righteousness as anything else. And then we have prayer, and I'll talk about that tomorrow morning. Well, we must get on here. Well, then we have the the last part of chapter 6, which is about money, about givers and takers. And uh, it's interesting to me that Luke makes this idea of what you do with your money the basis of repentance. Remember when the people came to John to be baptized, he said, look, I'm not going to baptize you until you give me evidence of repentance. And they said, what shall we do? And he said, if you have two coats, give one away. If you have extra food, give it away. I wonder how many people in preaching on repentance ever defined it that way. And Zacchaeus one time had Jesus come to visit him. We have no idea what they talked about. But we do know what Zacchaeus did. He gave half of his goods away and he, he did restitution four times the amount that he had defrauded uh, the person. And Jesus didn't say, now Zacchaeus, you're getting the cart before the horse. You need to get born again first and maybe that'll flow from. There. No, he said, today salvation is come to this house. And so this is a very important issue. Christians are lavish givers. The Bible says they're cheerful givers. The Greek word for cheerful there is hilaros, hilarious when we take up an offering, there should be chuckles up and down the pew. That's Christians. They are not greedy. They are, I told you, selfishness is sin. And there's nothing that challenges our selfishness any more than our pocketbooks. Okay? And that's why this is such a huge issue to Jesus and people like uh, John the Baptist. And so then... Uh, And you have to remember also, uh, I'm, I'm taking way too long on this, you have to remember also that in the final judgment there isn't going to be one word said about most of the things we preach. All that's going to be asked is, did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you visit the people in prison? Did you care about the people who needed your help? What about the new birth? I think he's saying... If you didn't do that, you really never had a new birth. If you don't do that, you really haven't done what you thought you did, because that's the final fruit, what you did with your stuff in relation to the needs of the world around you. So some people think the Sermon on the Mount ends there, because chapter 7 is another very interesting. Jesus was more than a genius. He was God, of course, God the Son. But this is genius. He knows that he's just pictured the most idealistic principles you could possibly talk about. And he knows that probably if people don't know how to apply those, they will cause a peck of trouble. And so he spends all of chapter 7 explaining how we need to apply these principles. And that will be the message on Sunday evening. So Josh, you'll have to wait till then. (laughs) All right, let's go back to the preamble. It begins with the word blessed. Now, this doesn't mean happy. I detest the translations that translate this happy. Because happiness is based on circumstances. I went to Dr. Hess one time, our German Baptist doctor, and I said, Dr. Hess, what do you think of this diagnosis given to every other person that they're bipolar? And he threw back his head and laughed, I could still see him, and he said, John, we are all bipolar. When things go to our liking, our feelings go up. And when things are not to our liking, they go down. (laughs) That's happiness. Happiness is based on circumstance. The word hap, it was the hap of Ruth to glean the field of Boaz. It was just a chance, circumstance. She She got into that field. That's hap. And happiness is based on hap. This is not talking about happiness. This is talking about being blessed. It's not a feeling, it's something that's bestowed. It's God's bringing down upon you. That's what this is. This has nothing to do with feelings. This has to do with God bestowing a blessing on you. If you do these things, a gift bestowed. So let's begin, because we have to move quickly here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, so this is the new birth. This is how we get into the kingdom. This word means destitute in spirit. There are two Greek terms they tell me for the word poor. One means a working man that has nothing extra, but he's able just to get by. The other term is someone who has nothing with no hope of ever having anything. He is destitute. He has nothing. And this is saying, blessed is the man whose spirit is completely needing something. He has nothing in himself. It's the sense that without Christ you can do nothing. He said that. And it's a sense you believe that. In fact, Finney said one time, it's the consciousness that if people knew what you know about yourself, they would think horrible of you because they, you know some things about yourself that they don't even know that are pretty nice. It's the consciousness that we are extremely needy people. Unless God does something, unless we yield to him and let him do his work in us, we are totally abjectly, destitute, and without anything. Okay? We sing it in our song when we sing, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. It all has to come from you. I'm done. That's where the new birth begins. It's self-renunciation. Francis Schaefer used to tell us that in every heart... There's a throne and a cross. Before conversion, self is on the throne and Christ is on the cross. That's before conversion. Conversion is when you decide to put Christ on the throne and self on the cross. That's conversion. And it doesn't happen until that actually is starkly done and completely done. That self is there saying, Lord, Apostle Paul said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And he was ready to do whatever God told him. If if God would have said, you get on your hands and knees and climb to Jerusalem uh, that way, he would have done that. He would have done whatever God told him to do. That's where Christianity begins. But the problem is, self doesn't like to be on the cross. It's trying in all the ingenious ways it can think of to get down off the cross and still be a Christian. And so Jesus says we need to take up our cross every day. And I would like to just give you a picture here so you can have a picture in your mind how you do this every day. How do you take up your cross every day? Well, let's say this is the way of self. And this is the way of Christ. And you're going along on your way. You're a young man going down to the car lot to buy a car. And you've dreamed for years. I mean, I was a young man one time. You dream for years what kind of car that's going to be. What will make heads turn? What will make a statement? What will be, yeah, this will be the car. And there it is. Oh, dear. I'm going to have to borrow a lot of money to buy that car. And I have a seeking suspicion maybe I shouldn't. Oh, over here's the car. Okay, now I have the money. and it, Oh, but it's not going to make any statement at all. It's going to have, it's a good car. It's, it's, a, it's a Honda. <laughs> it's going to have lots of miles in it, it's going to be economical, it's, it, it's a good car. Okay, I'll buy this one, not that one. I making it just as practical as I know how to make it. Maybe it's a girl making a dress, maybe, who knows? Any decision, self is always there. And then the way of Christ intersects, and we choose to take the way of Christ day after day, decision after decision after decision, this becomes the habit of our life. That we allow Christ to constantly intersect any selfishness that comes into any decision we're making. And it's our passion to have self completely eradicated from every decision and have Christ established as the Lord of our life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Scientists have to do this they have to sit down before the facts and put aside all their prejudices and all their preconceived ideas and all the big statements they may have made and let the facts speak for themselves and make the changes. A good example is Louis Pasteur. Louis Pasteur one day looked through his microscope. He was a chemist. He looked through his microscopes and he saw these squiggly little things and it dawned on him. So that's what causes disease. Up to that time, there were all kinds of superstition, vapors in the air and all kinds of things. And... Uh, So he went to the doctors in the hospital where one third of the people who came there died. And he said, and people didn't go to the hospital because it was a dangerous place to be. And he went to the doctors and he said, you know what? The reason a lot of these people are dying is because you're carrying these little things from this person to this person. What you need to do is do a good hand washing before you do the next examination. And they ridiculed him. You are a chemist. We are doctors. We know we've been educated. We're not going to listen to you. And people kept dying. Scientists have to have that kind of humility. In fact, that's what Jesus is saying here is true in all of life. If we're going to make any progress at all, we have to become learners. We have to get down off our high horses of pride. We have to say we know nothing until the facts speak to us. And so that's how we get into the kingdom. Because he says, theirs is the kingdom. <laughs> there it is. That's the new birth. The poor in spirit get into the kingdom. All right? The next thing is mourning. Because once you do this, all of a sudden, you have a different set of eyes. You see God like Isaiah saw him and was down on his face because God is holier than he ever dreamed God was. You see yourself as the awful person you are. Before you thought you were a pretty good person. But now you see the ugliness of the sin in your life. You see the world as a great tragic battlefield where people are dying and being killed because of stupidity and ignorance and rebellion. And that world and all the stuff it has to offer has no appeal anymore. It's it's not anything attractive. And your response is mourning. Oh God, help us. Sam Hadley was the director of the uh, Bowery City Mission He once had been a drunk on the street, and he got converted. And then he became the director of the Bowery Mission to rescue those kind of people. And one night, Charles Alexander, who was the singer for for Billy Sunday, I think, came there one night to sing in one of their evangelistic evening meetings. And after the service, he said to Sam Hadley, he said, would you give me a tour of the Bowery? And he knew the Bowery well. And he took him around and showed him the flop houses, the houses of prostitution, the drunk men sleeping on the streets, and just all the awful stuff of the Bowery. And then they walked around the corner and back to the mission, and he went to meet his bus. But all of a sudden, he heard somebody weeping. So he walked back around the corner, and there was Sam Hadley with his head against the lamppost saying, Oh, saying, oh God, the sin of this city breaks my heart. That's what we're talking about. Too many people see something in the world that's attractive. This person sees nothing of that. He sees nothing but sin. He sees nothing but sin in his own life. And then he sees in contrast to that the holiness of God. And he's mourning. He's sad. He wants, he, he, yeah, it, it, it breaks his heart. But there's a promise, I said, with each of these. It says he shall be comforted. Why? Because he'll start dealing with his sin. He'll start relating to the sin of the world. He'll start responding the way God wants him to respond. He'll begin to see changes in his life, in the lives of other people, and his family, and things will start to look like the redemption of God, and that will comfort his heart. The self-directed way is a delusion. It is a delusion, and people live in that delusion until this happens. The story is told of a reporter who visited an old people's home. He met three very old-looking men. And he asked him what was the secret of their long life. The first man says, I never smoked, I never drank, I never caroused, and I've been happily married to the same woman for 60 years. How old are you? 96. The second man looked older, and he asked him about his life. And he said, well, I smoked a little, drank a little, caroused a little. My first wife divorced me, and I've been married to my second wife for 41 years. How old are you? 66. He looked at the third man who really looked bad. He said, what about you? He said, well, I smoke three packs a day. I drink two-fifths of whiskey every day. I have caroused to the early hours of the morning, six days a week, and I've never been married. How old are you? 25. I once read of a suicide note where a boy wrote on it, dead of old age, at 21. That's what sin does. Sin is a delusion. Believe me. And hear what I'm saying tonight about the true way of life. The Bible says sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. And I could say more, but we must move on. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, thou wilt not despise I Quote that verse over and over on the billboard phone conversations. Someone was out doing mission work in the city under William Booth, the Salvation Army, and they were having no success. And they sent a telegraph to Booth. What shall I do? Booth telegraphed two words back. Try tears. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, once a person, these, these flow, I'm trying to show you the flow of, of experience here. So once a person sees his own sin and begins to deal with it, he becomes meek because he knows that person he's ready to pass judgment on and ready to criticize is no worse than he is. They have the same needs he has. He has compassion. Meekness is gentleness. Someone who has strength is like a horse that's been brought under control, but it's gentle. It's not it, harsh. It's, it's not harsh. This person trusts God that if there's a wrong to be taken of, he can afford to be meek and kind and let God take care of the vengeance, let God take care of what he was tempted to do. He can afford to wait. The Bible says, trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. This person is gentle and safe, but the promise is astounding. The meek shall inherit the earth well, I think somebody that I just described, people would wipe their feet on a doormat and take advantage. But that's not true. The early Christians were persecuted severely. The Roman Empire tried by seven purges to destroy Christianity before it ever began. And within 200 years, it won the heart of the Roman Empire, and Constantine had to, whatever he did, Make his concessions to Christianity, but how did they do it? They did it by service, by dying. They didn't lift a sword. There was no there was no harshness. There was no uh, ugliness and conquering people. It was they conquered by love. In fact, Julian the Apostate, after Christianity had become uh, Christians became free in the empire and Christianity was favored. Julian the Apostate, who was raised by Christian parents a century later, tried to bring back paganism because he thought Rome was going down because the pagan gods had been uh, neglected. And so he tried desperately to get paganism to succeed, but he finally had to admit they did not. And, of course, the story is on the battlefield he threw blood into his own blood. He'd been wounded and said, Thou hast conquered the Galilean. But what had he said before that? He said, We cannot overcome these Christians. They outserve us. They not only take care of their own poor, their own sick, their own wounded, their own needy, they take care of ours. That's how they conquered. Somebody has said, beware of the terrible meek. They are a powerful force, and you will not win if you're going to fight against the meek. The meek shall inherit the earth, and I could say more about that. You all know about Peter, Pastor Peter and the thatch, where they were taking the thatch off his roof, and they invited... Uh, He invited them in for breakfast, and they went back and put the thatch back on the roof. How many of you remember that story in Coals of Fire? (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. The next one. I said there's a promise with each of these, and that's a tremendous promise. You can afford to be meek. You can afford to forgive. You can afford to be kind. You can afford to be taken advantage of. You can afford all of that. For it says the meek shall inherit the earth. That's a promise. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They say there are two Greek words for the idea of hunger. One means to have just a small piece of bread and the other one means to have the whole loaf. And this person wants the whole loaf. You know, most people want to be righteous, but they want just enough righteousness to be respectable. <laughs> they don't want too much righteousness. They just want enough to, be, to look good, okay? This person hungers and thirsts after righteousness. He has an intense desire to be right in everything he says and everything he does. Why? Because up to this point, by responding the way I've been telling you, he learns that this is a good policy. This is the best policy. So he has this tremendous desire to be perfect. Now, when you use this word perfect, most Christians recoil. They say, oh, nobody's perfect. But that's exactly what God calls us to. It says, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, people say, oh, that means mature. So it says, be mature just as God in heaven is mature. That doesn't sound right to me. (laughs) It means perfect. And Paul says, I labor to the point of exhaustion and agony to present every man perfect in Christ. And God says, be holy for I am holy. Now, the Apostle Paul finally says, I haven't attained that. I haven't attained it, but I press toward the mark. A characteristic of a true Christian is that even though he has not attained perfection, that is his passionate pursuit. That's what he wants more than anything else in the world, to be perfect. Look at the promise. They shall be filled. That word is gorged. Would somebody tell me what the word gorged means? Come on, you're better in your English than that. Stuffed, more than full. Well, why? Because that's what you were made for. You were not made to hate. I'm talking about even physically. The Bible says envy is a rottenness to the bones. It even wears you down physically. Your physical body wasn't even made for sin. You were made to love. You were made to serve. You were made to forgive. That's what you were made for. And anything other than that will leave you frustrated. It's a little bit like saying... I need a little handful of stone dust for a little science experiment I'm doing. I'm not going to go downtown and buy a little handful of stone dust. I'll just go out in the driveway, and I'll get myself some stones, and I'll come in, and I'll turn on the blender, and I'll put... <laughs> <laughs> What's going to happen? You going to have any stone dust? Are you going to have any blender? <laughs> it wasn't made for that. Or the farmer that goes and buys a new baler and says, well, the first project here is to bale up that pile of scrap iron. Uh, <laughs> you were not made to sin. Please believe that when you're tempted. Every time you put into this what God intended, you will be gorged. And we're talking about service. We're talking about giving. We're talking about forgiving. We're talking about all those wonderful things that God expects us to do. And they will bring complete satisfaction, more than complete satisfaction. Passion and intent. Now, David never achieved his ambition to build the temple, but he made lavish preparations to get it built. He was so passionate to have a house built for God, even though God said he could not build it. And God said, David, I'm happy with your intention. I'm happy with your intention. Thou didst well that it was in thine heart, God said to David. This is talking about a discontent with all things that are unlike God. A passion to be governed by the same laws that govern the actions of God. And we can go back to Mozart with his little trick he played on his father. If you want the satisfaction, you've got to play the song right to the end. The way it's supposed to be played. We were made for righteousness, not sin. Hatred, envy, lust, dishonesty... All of those things will not leave you satisfied. So now the passion for righteousness leads into the next one. You're going to be merciful. That's how you're going to treat people. The Greek word means the ability to get inside another person's skin until we can see things with his eyes, think things with his mind, and feel things with his feelings. It's the word compassion. And the Bible uses the word bowels of compassion. I used to think as a boy, wow, that's a pretty earthy term to have in the Bible. But that's exactly what it means. How many of you have ever been so worried about something your whole digestive system rebelled? Come on. That's the kind of concern you should have for people who are in need. Now, I don't mean that your digestive system would be upset 24-7, but, but that's the picture. A genuine concern that affects you at the deepest level. That's what mercy is. Many righteous people are not mercy. But righteous, untempered by mercy, is hard, sour-faced, and ugly. God is rich in mercy. He loves mercy, Micah 7:18. It's the po- desire to make life as easy as possible for other people. Now, that does not mean you don't address sin, but it does mean this, that when you're done addressing the sin, it was, it was the words that hurt, not the way you said them. You, am I making sense? You should study. In fact, we're going to learn Sunday evening how you're supposed to go about this. But you're to study to make sure you can say those words. You know those words are going to cut. You're going to have to tell that boy who's living with his girlfriend and unmarried and they've been living together for years and they love each other. You're going to have to tell him he's going to leave. Ugh, it's going to hurt. But before you go to tell him, you study to say that in the kindest way you can think. You don't go into his life. No, 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 no. You're merciful. The merciful person is quick to forgive. He's slow to criticize. He's generous with his resources. He never condemns, and I'd love to discuss that word, but we'll have to save that for Sunday evening too. He's merciful. He does not like to hurt people. Ooh, it hurts him as badly as it hurts them. And he studies to make sure that it's the words he says that, that hurt the true words he says, not the way he said them. Righteousness and mercy are beautiful when they walk together. Righteousness alone is hard. Mercy alone is mushy, false, and undisciplined. They have to be together. How many have ever read Shakespeare's uh, Merchant of Venice? You people don't read Shakespeare. Well, you should. (laughs) So I have to tell you a little bit of the story. Antonio has a friend. Well, I have to tell you about Antonio. He's a, he's a man that owns a great fleet of ships. He's a wealthy man. He sends out his ship, they bring back stuff, and he sells and makes lots of money. And uh, he has just sent out his ships, and he's invested all his money in equipping those ships, and he's going to make the money when they come back. But now he's cash poor. And his friend is going to get married. And he wants to give his friend a lavish gift, but he has no money, no cash. So he goes to Shylock, the Jewish moneylender, and he does not know that Shylock secretly hates him. And Shylock is very generous and very kind, and he oh, sure, he'll lend you the money. And if you can't pay it back, I just all I want's a pound of your flesh. And then he laughs and it's a joke. And then Antonio learns later that the ships have all crashed and there'll be no money to pay it back. And it goes to court. And in the court, Shylock is demanding his pound of flesh. And the judge is begging for th- to him to have mercy. And the, all the people in the courtroom are begging to have, for him to have mercy. All the lawyers are begging for him to have mercy. No, he will have his pound of flesh. So the judge says, well, Antony, I'm sorry, but we can't do anything for you. So you might as well prepare for this. So he takes off his upper clothing and Shylock is there sharpening his knife. And in walks another lawyer. And the lawyer says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, minute." give me the contract. Oh, it says you may have a pound of flesh. Well, if you get any blood with the flesh, you're going to die because it doesn't say you can have any blood. And if you cut more than a pound of flesh, you die because you may only have a pound of flesh. And if he dies, you die because it doesn't say you can have his life. And then he's pleading for mercy. Shylock. And then we find out later that the woman... Is his wife disguised, or I think maybe the wife of his friend, who had gone to some lawyer and had gotten some good advice. And the story ends, and everybody lives happily ever after. (laughs) Now I'll go home and read The Merchant of Venice. (laughs) You'll find some wonderful quotable English. Shakespeare could, could craft the English language about as well as anybody, except the people who did the King James Version. All right. But in the middle of this, Portia, who's this lawyer, gives this speech. It's a famous speech called the quality of mercy speech, and I'm going to read it. The quality of mercy is not strained. It drops as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute of all and majesty, wherein doth dwell the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It's enthroned in the hearts of kings. It's an attribute of God it's Himself. And here's the quotable line: An earthly power doth show itself like as its God's when mercy seasons justice. Beautiful statement. And what's it say? The merciful shall obtain mercy. How many have ever heard of Sundar sing? He wrote the music, or he wrote the words to that song, uh, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. He was an Indian preacher. One day he and a friend decided to go across a, a, a mountain in the Andes to the village on the other side to uh, evangelize. And uh, they didn't get very far up the mountain until they realized that they had not dressed warmly enough, and a storm was approaching, and they got, they got colder and colder. And uh, then they came upon a form in the, in the uh, snow. And so Sundar Singh got down. He said, this man's still alive. He's breathing. We have to take him with us. The other man said, oh, my dear, if we take him with us, we'll all die. We can't do that. So he goes on by himself. And uh, Sundar Singh picked up the body, put it across his shoulder, and tried went up the mountain, and he got hotter and hotter. The man thawed out, and pretty soon they were walking together. And then they came upon another form of snow. He wasn't breathing. It was the man who had gone on by himself. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, pure means something that has nothing mixed with it. It's pure water. It doesn't have any minerals or anything. It's just pure aqua pura. It's pure milk. Nobody's added water to it. It's a single desire to please God. And I think I talked, did I talk about pleasing God last night? I did, didn't I? So I don't have to describe. What's the difference between pleasing God and obeying? I think I did. The boy who does what the parents tells him to do, uh, okay, uh, <laughs> I don't have time to do it, but anyway. It's a single desire to please God. People tell me on the phone, I don't see any evidence for God. And I inside chuckle, I see evidence for God all around me. Why don't they see evidence for God? Because this says, the pure in heart shall see God. So our ability to see is based on our moral commitment. If there's something in my heart that isn't right, I will not see God. This is how it goes. Someone comes to you and starts to talk to you about something in your life. And you know before very long he's going to say something you don't want to hear. So you go like this. Or you start to rationalize. And you stomp down the truth. The Bible says the truth is suppressed by unrighteousness. And so if people stomp down truth, they lose their ability to see. They can't see. Okay? I one time went on a walk with my friend, Roman J. Miller, who was the head of the science department at Eastern Mennonite University. Now, he's a biologist. Now, I can walk through the woods, and I can enjoy the smell of the trees, and I can enjoy the beautiful flowers, and I can look around, and I can enjoy my walk in the woods. But the day I walked in the woods with him, he knew what all those trees were. He knew what all the plants were. He knew what medicinal value they had, and I just got lectures on everything as we walked. Why? Why? because he had eyes prepared to see the woods. I did not. You see what you're prepared to see. I walk out at night, most people do, like me, and you look at the stars, oh, they're wonderful. (laughs) But you walk out with an astronomer and he will see things you didn't see. Why? Because he's prepared himself to see them. You see what you want to see. And the person who tells me he doesn't see God doesn't want to see God. (laughs) So if you want to see, you have to purify your heart. I think I have to tell this story. My dad was a strict disciplinarian. If you think I'm a strong personality, you should have met my dad. And all my friends pitied me because they thought I had an awful dad, and I did too. Because I couldn't see my dad. I was a boy at a church where all the other boys had radios in their cars. Now, and this isn't a comment about the radio. You can do with that whatever your congregation decides. But in our congregation, uh, the radio was permitted, and everybody pretty much had them except me. There was one or two other boys. And so when my dad bought the car for me that I have had for my first car, he would not let it be delivered till the radio was out. And so my first car had a hole in the dash and a hole in the fender. That was my first car. And nobody wanted to ride with me because I had no music. Everybody else had music. Three months later was my birthday. When I came in from the barn, there was a large package on my chair. There was a small package on my plate. Now, this large package was a reel-to-reel. How many remember the reel-to-reel, seven-inch reel reel tape recorder? Now, this you're going to tell your age. (laughs) Okay. That's what it was. It was a reel-to-reel tape recorder, a little sunny with the speaker in the back, which I don't know why, I think God made them put that in the back that year. Because you could put that little sony right on the hump in front of the front seat, pull it back tight, and the music came out the back. And the little package was a converter. They converted 120 volt electricity, direct current, into uh, 12 volt, I'm sorry, 12 volt electricity into 120 volts of alternating current. So you plugged it in the cigarette lighter, you plugged in the recorder, and you had music. And I had the best music, and everybody wanted to ride with me. (laughs) But that had cost my dad $100 for the recorder in 1963. You can multiply that by at least 15 in today's money. The little converter cost him $40. Multiply that by 15. You have about $2,000 in today's money, and my father was not rich but I learned to know my dad, and I looked at him differently every day after that. My dad was willing to sacrifice, and I learned that when my dad said no, it was for one reason only. He wanted to give me something better. And I saw my dad after that. Something happened to my heart. And that's what it's saying. If you want to see God, if you really want to make progress learning to know God, Work on purifying your heart and get all this selfishness, by the way, is the mixture you've got to get out. Get the selfishness out. The more selfishness you can get out of your heart, the clearer you will see God. And I promise to make this short. Okay. Peacemakers. This does not say blessed are the peace lovers. A peace lover is a person who compromises, does anything he can to keep the peace and not have any trouble. This says peacemaker... And the Bible says Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. Oh. So this is a person that when there's a problem somewhere, he's willing to make whatever sacrifices he needs to make, but he's going to resolve that problem to the best of his ability no matter what it costs. That's a peacemaker. And we need those in the church. We need people like that. They say, here's a problem, and they have the wisdom and the courage and all it takes to wade into that even if it costs them some of their own blood to make peace. And settle the problem my illustration for that is John Woolman, who was a Quaker and a few Quakers had slaves they were household slaves they never had them doing the awful stuff slaves did but they were slaves nonetheless and John Woolman said this is a disgrace to the Quaker church to have slaves so how's he going to do it is he going to get up and rail on people and and start throwing things right and left and getting all out of hand no he had a dry goods store And he knew that the dyes that were used for the cloth in his dry goods store and the dyes that he sold were made by slave labor in the South. And so he decided to have no dyed cloth. No dyes were sold in his store. And he didn't wear dyed clothing. So here's a preacher who gets up, a Quaker preacher that was used to wearing black and gray and somber brown, standing up preaching with a white suit. It was a disgrace. He lost money. But when John Woolman died, there were no slaves among the Quakers. He was a peacemaker. He found a way at tremendous personal cost to resolve a problem. And it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for now they shall be called the children of God because that's what God is. He gave his son to reconcile us unto himself. He did something drastic. He did something costly to make peace between himself and us and between humans. We are really children of God when we get to this point. But our problem is we have problems sometimes among us and none of us want to get involved. Ooh. <laughs> and those problems just grow and grow and grow. We need people who say, wait a minute, there's a problem. Something has to be done about this. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to put my life on the line, whatever, and I'm going to find a way to be kind and gentle, but we're going to deal with this problem. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then finally, blessed are the persecuted. I'm just going to <clears throat> Uh, leave that one and not say much about it except to say that this kingdom of god is going to be in a tremendous clash with that kingdom everything about the kingdom is the opposite of this kingdom and there's going to be a clash and people are going to get hurt and he says blessed are the persecuted for they shall for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So here's this this just a wonderful preamble. Uh, I hope you can go home and meditate on these. If every character embodied these and kept growing in these and had a true new birth and got this whole process started, you can present to the world this perfect community, perfect in intention, credible in practice of what the whole world would look like, or what society would look like if man had never sinned, just exactly the way human beings were supposed to live. Well, it's a lifelong project. The story is told of an old couple who were on the mission field all their lives. They came home on the same ship to San Francisco with Teddy Roosevelt, the president. And when they landed in San Francisco, Teddy Roosevelt got off that ship with all his trophies that he'd gotten in two weeks of uh, safari in Africa. And a crowd met him and led him down the streets of San Francisco to a great ticker tape parade and everybody was happy and this old couple stood on the ship. There was nobody there to greet them. They'd been on the mission field so long that nobody even remembered they existed. They had sacrificed their whole life for the kingdom of God. And in just one little moment of bitterness, he turned to his wife and said, honey, this is not fair. He goes to Africa for two weeks of fun, and look what he gets. We go to Africa and sacrifice our whole life, everything. Look what we get. And she said, honey, we are not home yet. That's what we need to remember. This is not going to be easy. But when we get home, I'll guarantee you what we receive will not even compare to a ticker tape parade. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Our Father, we thank you tonight that you not only have proposed an ideal society, you've given us the resources and the disciplines we need to actually experience that society. Oh, God, I pray for Ebenezer Mennonite Church I pray, Lord, that these qualities will just continue to grow and that this congregation corporately will become more and more beautiful and the light, the lantern of righteousness will shine brighter and brighter into the surrounding community and bring many people in out of the dark. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.